Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I am joined by Rupert Kirkwood. Rupert goes by the name The Lone Kayaker. You may have seen some photos of his incredible sea life encounters, and today we chat about those experiences, his motivation, and what led him to a life seeking beautiful creatures. Before we get to our chat with Rupert, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. Everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries, it's all in one place. And if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here is your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. And Level 6 continues as a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we've got a great offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, just visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order there as well. With that, enjoy today's episode with Rupert Kirkwood. Hello, Rupert. Thank you for joining me for Paddling the Blue today. Um, great to talk to you, John, and thank you very much for um, inviting me to talk on Paddling the Blue. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your talents, not only here and, and uh, throughout the web. So um, you have been, you've got some amazing photography and some amazing stories. So tell us first, how did you get your start as a paddler? Well, I was brought up far away from the sea, funnily enough, in the very landlocked county of Berkshire, in central southern England to the west of London, a long way away from wide open expanses of water, but it did have a bit of sort of paddling mag magic running right through the middle of it, and that was the River Thames. And that is where, as a little tiny chap, the youngest of four siblings, I used to love to spend as much time as possible uh, dibbling about in the river like uh, little chaps do catching minnows and I just sort of even at that young age I loved the tranquility of the slow running water you know the rustle of willow leaves the serenity of swans and I, I loved every minute of it spent as much time as I could down there and then I think funnily enough in common with many of the paddlers you've interviewed um, my father bought us a little uh, rubber dinghy and together with a outboard motor we set off onto the water and even um, you know, managed to get around the corner where all the mysterious pleasure boats were coming from. Um, but just one thing about the, the, uh, the engine, the engine didn't really do it for me. I didn't like the intrusion of the noise. So then when we upgraded, my father bought my brother um, an old canvas kayak. This was, we're talking about the sort of early 60s here, a canvas kayak, which we christened Mayfly. Um, I was in excitement overload because it had a cockpit big enough for me to squeeze between my uh, brother's front legs, just low enough for my nose to appear over the wooden combing at the front of the kayak. So we managed to get into the mysterious land where the, where the pleasures cruises come from and beyond. And um, my lifelong fascination for kayaking was, uh, was nicely hatched. Um, in, in parallel, I should point out with my lifelong passion for kayaking, I've got an even longer uh, fascination for natural history, which has sort of basically been ingrained in my DNA. 
I've absolutely loved watching wild animals. As a family, we used to have we used to have wild animals all around the place. My, my father was a vet, a farm vet in Reading. Um, he was forever bringing back sort of fox cubs for us to look after. Um, we had a pet, a pet that killed a lamb called Luke, who used to run around the house uh, together. Incidentally, best friends with my sister's rabbit. My brother used to keep snakes in the bookcase, and we had a pet owl which used to live in the sitting room. So, so all, all this was fed you know, deep into my central core. And so I've, I've managed to marry up my, my two main personal hobbies. It's been with me for the rest of my life. Well, that sounds like a fantastic childhood with a really unique upbringing. Well, yes, indeed it was. I mean, it's very interesting, actually, if you want to go into my personality, which I, I, I guess you're probably interested in. I'm one of those people who takes everything to the extreme. Bird watching, for example, I've always been a bird watcher. Um, when I was younger, my brother built, you know, one brother built one nest box. I built, uh, and the other brother built two nest boxes for birds. I built 57. <laughs> and then so every, every tree around the garden um, was sort of bristling with nest boxes. Um, also for my sins, I was a fanatic train spotter, just to give you an insight into my personality. You know, my friends used to go down to the station, got bored by lunchtime. I stayed there till it was getting Till it got dark. The only reason I actually gave up train spotting was when I'd logged 500 locomotives in the day. I'd seen the entire lot before. You know, in fact, even I believe even my one of my teachers at school wrote on my school report that I had a sort of tendency to nerdism, I think they say. <laughs> and that word has sort of followed me around a bit. But I mean, so I'm, I'm quite proud of this. I, I, I feel like um, whenever I get involved in a subject, I do it to the absolute extreme. And it's something that over my life I've been quite proud of. Uh, when, I, when I was at junior school, you know, I, I never really followed the trends. I mean, I wasn't, I, I played team sports, but I wasn't really a team player. I mean, you'd be quite amused to hear that um, as a goalkeeper in football, I not infrequently picked the ball out of the back of the net sort of 10 or a dozen times. You might well ask, where was the rest of my team in actual fact to help me? So I didn't follow the trend. But what I did find when I went to school, I was absolutely captivated by kayaking. I didn't do mainstream sports. I had little sort of, um, you know, I was a bit of a late developer. I had little stick legs, which resembled a sort of ash sapling in a pine forest. They were, they were that thin. So I, so I didn't like contact sports. But um, when I discovered the canoe club, when I went to school in Taunton, this was a sort of light bulb, light changing moment because I loved every minute of the individual individuality of kayaking. And I'm hugely indebted to my uh, physics teacher then, Mr. Fisher, who used to, um, you know, we used to bully him. My, my friends and I used to bully him to take us down to the River Tone to go um, kayaking, even on his days off. There's something about finding that that spark, that thing that really, uh, really grabs you. And I'm glad you found kayaking for that. Well, yes, I, I um I did absolutely love it. So as I was already explaining, I sort of I sort of lived for kayaking. I mean, I did incidentally. I, I was quite a SWAT at school, so I I did I did work quite hard. I, I achieved uh, respectable exam results. But the thing which really made me tick 
was kayaking. I did a limited amount of marathon racing when I was at school to a, a surprisingly low level of achievement, I should point out. But what it did teach me, which I've used to a good effect for the last, uh, what are we talking about, 50 years here, did teach me how to paddle properly and how to handle a sort of, you know, a relatively tippy kayak. And I learned the basics of how to roll and do all that kind of stuff. So e even though I've paddled on and off throughout throughout my life, um, that, that set me up in good stead. I was lucky enough to get decent enough A-levels to um, achieve a place at v Bristol University Veterinary School where I studied for five years. I mean, needless to say, as a student, um, there were other things on my mind rather than kayaking. So kayaking took a bit of a backseat then. But then I got offered the job as a farm vet in the in the west in West Devon, in the beautiful little town of Holsworthy, close to the North Cornwall coast. And this was very convenient because it's a fantastic place for surfing. And I arrived there just about the same time in the early 80s this was that uh, wave skis were invented so wave skis being basically a sit on top uh, surf kayak so i took to the uh, i took to wave skiing and surfing like the proverbial duck to water incidentally you know as as a veterinary surgeon i worked very hard sometimes went for three weeks without a day off and including in that time you know one in three nights on duty so nights off were very very precious indeed but working hard and, and incidentally working with all the um, fantastic farmers that I used to go out and see um, it did engender a sort of work hard play hard type ethos in me so um, any second I had off including early mornings I would be down to the beach and I'm tackling the waves on my wave ski. Well, nothing wrong with living your passion. Um, so you've been able to take that uh, that love for um, for kayaking and the love for animals growing up, turn that into uh, carrying on the family business, I guess you might say, in terms of uh, veterinary work. And then you combined that with photography. So how did you get your start as a photographer? Well, I was a fanatic wave ski surfer for, say, 20 years. And this was actually, it was a busy time because I met my, met my wife, Becky, who, who, who installed a sense of adventure in me when we um, took a year out and drove from Devon down to the tip of South Africa at Cape Town. Um, so my, my, my sense of adventure was further developed by her. And we had four children, so busy times. But I did a bit of, in the limited amount of time off, I, had a, I did a limited amount of competing in my wave ski also to a surprisingly low level <laughs> but then um, after 20 years of that the beaches got so crowded surfing became so popular I was looking for to, to get away from the crowds and at that moment again fortunately I'm um, sit on top kayaks were invented so I bought myself a sit on top kayak and proceeded to paddle around the coast um, incidentally the, the reason I love the sit on top was the freedom and the safety of it, because the North Cornwall coast is a very hostile coast for kayak touring um, because it is pounded by a relentless swell. Um, just remember the old seafarer's saying, which says, from Heartland Point to Padstow Light, tis a watery grave by day or night. So there's a 50 section section of coast near where I live 
where there is no respite if you are caught in a storm out at sea. So it's a pretty hostile bit of coast. So I just felt more secure in a sit on top kayak, even though um, I did have experience with a bit of sea kayaking at that stage. So now from your, from your moniker, I'm guessing that you most often paddle alone. Well, yes, I do. Um, the, the reason um, I paddle alone is not really through choice. It is because once again, going back to my sort of over-enthusiastic tendencies, I go so often, um, I run out of people to go with me. Okay. So I'm more than happy to go with my family. Some of my most memorable days out are with family and friends. But I also do love the days I go paddling alone. And the reason I love it are because um, it is a totally different experience. If you're with people, there's a lot of chat, you know, you're, you're focused on the social interaction. Whereas when I'm paddling by myself, after a few minutes of paddling, I get what's called in the zone. I'm paddling along in complete silence. I'm looking around. I'm looking for wildlife. I'm listening for wildlife. And um, after five minutes of doing that, I'm completely plugged in. You know, I can hear the peep of a mouse from half a mile away and I could see I could see a leaf move from a, from an equal distance. So I feel totally and utterly in tune, totally and utterly engrossed with wildlife. I find it a very special experience, one which actually is very addictive. And probably I should point out one which uh, more people should experience in the I'm reluctant to say nowadays it's a bit cliche, but um, you know, in this current day day and age of screens and staring at phones incessantly. Did you did you train uh, as a photographer? Well, okay, John, you 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 say in very interesting. I'm a photographer. Funnily enough, um, I would not describe myself as as a photographer. I would describe myself as a kayaker and wildlife enthusiast okay. who takes photographs. Photography implies a a sort of artistic creation. I, I'm just absolutely thrilled to be able to record what I see. Photography from the kayak is incredibly challenging. As you will know, your hands are permanently wet, your ha hands are permanently busy. So when I see a creature such as a, um, as a dolphin or an otter or a kingfisher, and I want to take a photograph of it, you've really got to move very, very fast indeed. Yeah, I reckon you've got about a 10 second reaction time from putting your putting your paddle down, hopefully drying your hands off a little bit, grabbing your camera, getting it out of its dry bag and pointing and shooting. Because after 10 seconds, more often than not, your subject has either gone or if it's a bird, it's flown past and is disappearing off to the horizon. So it's very challenging. I mean, uh, also, you know, I have no time to review the pictures I've taken at the time. Everything is such a rush. I take the photographs. I don't review them because, you know, what I've got, there's nothing I can do about. I'm eagerly anticipating the next encounter. So I wouldn't really uh, describe myself a photographer. Also, I don't have a particularly fancy camera. I just use a, a good quality bridge camera. It's not a proper photographer's um, DSLR with interchangeable lenses because you can never... Um, change lenses when you're out in a kayak. Well, the quality of your photos is amazing. I, I can tell you all my photos would look like those blurry images that you see of Sasquatch. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so how, how, what do you, what do you do to capture such amazing images from the seat of a moving platform? Okay. Well, my, my favorite kayak at the minute is a rather unimpressive 
roto-molded plastic sea kayak. It's, a, it's, a, it's got a great retro name of an RTM Disco. It's, it's quite a good boat. I quite like it. It's, it's relatively narrow, so it does have a turn of speed if you, if you want to if you want to go fast. I've got it set up really comfortably so I can spend all day sitting in it. I've glued four layers of camping mat to the bottom of the seat to make it really comfortable. Right. So it's got a good, it's got a tank well behind it, so an open space behind it. I keep my camera in its dry bag there. And when I encounter the creature, I, I whip it out from there. And um, funnily enough, I can't even hang it around my neck because one of the many injuries I incurred as a farm animal vet was an injury to my neck. I don't like hanging heavy straps around my neck. Mm. So I simply sit my camera, which incidentally is totally unwaterproof. It hasn't got a waterproof housing. I like to keep everything as simple as possible. I sit it on my lap, lift it up, pointed in the right direction, press the shutter. And when I finished, I'm sitting on my lap and hope it doesn't get too wet or fall in the sea. So what are your favorite wildlife subjects? One of the beauties of living in Southwest England, where I do in Southwest England, I am centrally positioned for access to both the North and the South Coast. Also, Southwest England is is crisscrossed by um, some very, very remote and attractive rivers, even though access on them is a little bit of an issue. I've, I've come across a few um, R8 landowners when I've been paddling down the rivers. It is also perforated by a number of beautiful flooded estuaries. So on any day, no matter where the wind's coming from, no matter where, no matter where the wind is, what the swell is, what the sea conditions are like, um, I can usually find a sheltered place to paddle. Even, uh, for example, this morning, um, I went for a because the wind, because the con weather conditions are so poor at the minute, I even can be seen um, paddling up the local canal. And as a wildlife enthusiast, even the local canal, that the, these these waterways are a little wilderness strip, which are which are a magnet for wildlife. And even there today, it was lovely to see a moorhen. So it's a relatively dull bird, actually, but in my view, rather beautiful. A moorhen with a little little brood of five tiny, fluffy black chicks just out of the egg, and watching the delicacy with which this great big, bulky moorhen was picking off little bits of weed and delicately feeding these minute bits of weed to its little fluffy chick you know it's a, it's a bit like feeding a, a human baby wearing a pair of oven gloves <laughs> and just that is magic for me so there's the canals there's the rivers seeing an otter a river otter in the rivers is a magical experience they are exceptionally shy creatures especially in england with a history of being uh, persecuted and shot um so otters in the rivers out along the estuaries, all the wintering seabirds, um, a whole load of seals. But lovely to see the migrating birds in the autumn time, such as the ospreys come down the rivers. And then we're moving out into my re the areas I really love, the open coast, and my great speciality, which I believe is sort of unique among UK kayakers. I love offshore paddling, because offshore around the coast of southwest England, um, you see some really, really special creatures, ones which when I started out doing this 20 years ago, I had absolutely no idea that, that were there, let alone that I could go and see in my tiny little kayak. So some of the most recent images that I've seen are of a pod of Rizzo's dolphins. So tell us about that experience. 
So Risso's dolphins are a not only a very rare species, they are also a most extraordinary, you might describe them as bizarre, mysterious perhaps. They don't look like normal dolphins, they don't have a beak, um, so they've got a blunt nose. They are very, very large, so they're sort of halfway between a normal dolphin, a common dolphin and a whale. They can be up to 14 foot long. They really do have the wow factor. When you see Arisso's dolphins appear at the surface, you can't, you can't help but say, wow, that's amazing, because they have very, very tall uh, dorsal fins, which, which project nearly two foot from the surface. So the biggest fin of all the um, finned creatures that occur around Southwest England. And I was thrilled um, a few months ago to find myself in amongst a pod of these creatures that they're, they're, they're exceptionally difficult to track in a kayak and of course you know easy if you're in a speedboat you can just crank up the crank up the speed on the outboard but very very challenging to track in a kayak because their pod moves at about five miles an hour which is the absolute top speed of my particular kayak i can't keep five, five miles an hour up for long so they're very very difficult to observe they're deep diving, they feed on cuttlefish. So if you see the fins, just to see the fins above the surface, 100 meters away is an off the scale thrill for me. But then they dive down, they might not come up for another 200 yards, by which time you've lost them. But I was absolutely thrilled to find myself in amongst a sort of socializing, relaxing pod of these dolphins, which were throwing themselves about above the water, slapping their tail flukes on the surface. And by sheer luck, and this doesn't usually happen, I happened to have my camera lifted to my eye and was pressing the shutter when one jumped clean out of the water. And, you know, I, I've done this before. And as you were saying earlier, the majority of images, you know, I can take hundreds of images in a day, all of where a dolphin just was, or if there is a dolphin there, it's a blurry image. But by sheer luck, um, this dolphin, as it leapt out, was in perfect focus and looking at it the still it is very thrilling to see the eye of this dolphin to see all the each individual scratches on its body risso's dolphins are characterized by the many scars on their body caused by fighting with their mates and and funnily enough best of all look closely at the image is the risso's dolphin is smiling dolphins are most wonderful creatures everybody loves a dolphin but what i love about a about a dolphin is they've got a built-in smile as well it makes it <laughs> makes the experience even better now how long was that particular experience occurring for you well that was unusually long for uh Rousseau's dolphins they sat around off the point where i was also sitting so i was sitting in amongst the middle of them uh, for about 10 minutes and then in a typical Risso's dolphin manner, they just disappeared and they were gone. So, so um, th this is what actually is the appeal to me for looking for these big sea creatures from a kayak is how extraordinarily difficult it is. People who don't do kayaking just don't get it. I have a lot of people come up to me, say, can you take me out to see dolphins in your kayak? And I, I say, well, yes, I'd love to, but it, the chances are it isn't going to happen. So if I'm planning to do an offshore paddle, um, the only way you're going to see a dolphin is really if it's flat calm. And the days 
in which it's flat calm. It's got to be flat calm all day, really, of southwest England. The days it's flat calm of southwest England, even in the middle of the summer, is just a handful of days each time. And not infrequently, I can go on a 10-hour, 30-mile random paddle around a bay looking for dolphins, and I don't see anything at all. So when I do come across them, it is a very special experience. So you're saying that you can't schedule the dolphins? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> That's yet another appeal. I like it. These, these are pelagic sea creatures. The dolphins I might see on one day. It could be hundreds of miles away uh, the next day. Sure. Um, we're talking about my most infrequently encountered dolphins are common dolphins, and they rove over vast distances. One day the sea can be boiling with them. The next day in the same patch of sea, in the same conditions, it can be completely deserted. One of the great mysteries of the sea and uh, one of the great appeals of the sea. So you mentioned that you were sitting in that uh, pot of Rizzo's dolphins for around 10 minutes as they, uh, as they made their way around you. How do you avoid disturbing the wildlife? Yes, that's a very, very good question, John. Disturbance, um, so the, the offshore marine wildlife has a, a lot of threats um, at the minute. Pollution, of course, climate change, the big, literally the big cloud on the horizon, and disturbance. Um, I should point out also overfishing, of course, uh, needless to say. But disturbance, there's an increasing number of tourist boats, eco-tourist boats, which go out and look at dolphins and whales and the other amazing wildlife around. But once again, that is why I choose a kayak. A kayak my kayak proceeds along at, at about walking speed when I'm looking, when, I, when I'm in dolphin hunting mode. Um, it is completely silent. Of course, it only dips two inches below the surface. So when you're offshore, that there's no disturbance at all. And of course, I, I'm looking at these creatures, studying their behavior. I've done this as a profession, of course, as a veterinary surgeon. So I get these creatures. The reason I go out there is because what I really like to do is look into their eye to see what makes them tick. I don't often get that close, but when I do, it's a very um, you know fulfilling experience. It's, it's the pinnacle of all my aspirations. So kayaking, if you want to not to disturb the wildlife, kayaking is the way to do it. Do you find any different techniques that uh, that work for up close uh, work, say the estuaries? Uh, yes. Okay. So you're right. Okay. O offshore, there's as minimal disturbance as you can possibly have in a kayak. Yes. Animals hauled out along the coast is a different story in actual fact. And the advent of kayaks and the massive popularity of stand on top, uh, stand up, uh, stand up paddle boards, particularly, uh, this is a bit of a problem with seals hauled out on the rocks. Um, need need their rest, that they're hauled out resting for a reason, particularly if they're on a breeding beach with pups. And a kayak charging into a beach like that, approaching too close, can indeed represent a bit of a uh, a, a big disturbance to these seals and when I first started out wildlife watching from my kayak I'm embarrassed to admit um, I did cause a few uh, seal stampedes on beaches so I now um, keep well away from resting seals and encourage every other kayaker I come across to do the same. 
So I would love to hear about your most awe-inspiring encounter. Well, my, my um, in, I think it was 2014, I had the idea, or somebody might have said to me, you ought to go out and see a whale from your kayak. And, you know, it was such a ludicrous idea. I think I sort of laughed at it disparagingly, but it was such a ludicrous idea. It actually appealed to me enormously. So I then set myself the task of trying to see a whale from a kayak. Um, I actually went to Green went to Greenland to see a whale from a kayak, failed. I had a great time, of course. I went to America to see a whale from a kayak, didn't because the weather was so bad at the time, unfortunately. So came back to southwest England and thought the only way I'm going to see a whale from a kayak is to paddle um, directly offshore whenever I can. And which is what I now do whenever the sea is calm. I head offshore to see a minke whale. To see one of them, you've really got to be at least um, paddle at least an hour offshore, so at least three miles offshore. And when you get when you get out there, you almost certainly won't see one because minke whales are very very few and far between. However, um, I have now had the pleasure over the last uh, seven years to come across. Uh, between 20 and 30 minke whales and my, my usual encounter with a minke whale because these are very fast moving creatures we don't spend that much time at the surface my usual encounter is a fin going past in the distance but on two occasions uh, the minkies have taken time off from their relentless feeding circuit and um, come to check me out so on two occasions I've just been sitting in my kayak five miles offshore, all alone, legs dangling over the edge of my kayak, having a cup of coffee, while these 30-foot whales surface just a few feet away from me. And the best part of the experience for me is the blow, is the sound of the blow. When that whale comes up and you hear the great of air, um, it is... Uh, it is everything I've I've always wanted to do ever since I'm ever since I was that tiny little boy on the banks of the River Thames long ago. Oh, sounds fantastic. So to put that into context, you mentioned twenty or thirty whale and minke whale encounters in the time that you've been doing this. Over what time would you say that uh, you've been searching? This is so I've I've worked out. I see whales approximately once every one thousand miles. I paddle. I've been looking for whales since uh, for about the last eight or nine years. I mean, the great thing about looking for whales is there's a lot of when you're paddling offshore, there's a lot of collateral excitement. There's loads of unusual seabirds. I, I usually do see something. So when I'm in a hunt for whales, usually I come across some porpoises, quiet little porpoises, often dolphins. Um, now increasingly late summer around southwest England, um, giant bluefin tuna. Tuna have made a big comeback, a conservation success story, um, or possibly a bit of climate change thrown in there as well. So the, the, these giant fish, eight foot long fish, which rip the surface apart in the, with a sort of ferocious explosion, um, which always you know make me twist my neck around in the most alarming fashion when they appear. I've come across a single leatherback turtle, so a half-ton sea turtle. Also, the occasional basking shark. So there's a lot of a uh, there's a lot to maintain the interest. And even even if I don't see any of these creatures, the, the fact that one of them could appear in front of my kayak at any moment 
keeps me going. You never know when that encounter is going to occur. And, and you mentioned, you know, t- to put it into context, you have, you have to paddle approximately 1,000 miles to see a whale. Of course, you're going to see a lot of other things along the way, but to see that whale. Well, it, it does require a lot of effort. I mean, that, that's why I'm afraid when I find myself offshore, I usually find myself paddling alone because unless you're really focused in on seeing the wildlife to a recreational kayaker who's more interested in the scenery and and, and we are blessed with some fantastic scenery out around southwest England but unless you know unless you're really into the wildlife paddling around in a horizonless blue sea isn't everyone's cup of tea sure so how about your scariest encounter Okay, two two scariest encounters. One is my encounters with basking sharks. I've had quite a few encounters with basking sharks. My last one was on a fairly cold April day when the sea is quite cold, cold wind. It was a bit choppy. Everything was a bit grey and featureless, and I just felt a bit uneasy. And I saw this giant fin um, ahead of me. So the basking shark fins are, you know, are really big. I'm almost looking up at the top of the fin as the creature is approaching. And basking sharks will come over to check out kayaks because my kayak is about basking shark shape. And they're they're not the most intelligent of creatures. So they sense your kayak is there. They will come over and check you out. So I had this vast creature, 25 foot long, a meter across, um, heading towards me. Not very fast, only at about sort of three knots but coming towards me like a torpedo, I could see the great white mouth coming towards me and it dipped under my kayak just at the last minute. And I caught a glimpse of that eye, you know, that sort of, that Jaws-like eye. And it just is a bit, it's a bit worrying. You know, it's a bit blank. It's a bit opaque. It's completely black. It's unblinking. It's just a little bit disconcerting as this great giant creature dipped under my kayak and incidentally scuffed the bottom of my kayak with its dorsal fin as I went under. Oh, that is a close encounter. Well, it is. I, I should point out, I've got to tell you about my most thrilling encounter of all, which many people said I should have been worried about, but I wasn't because it was excitement overload. All right. uh, was my close encounter with a humpback whale, one of the first, incidentally, humpback whales which had returned to the coast of southwest England, having been, you know, virtually harpooned off the face of the planet for the last couple of hundred years. So so um, this was um, exactly this time of year, funnily enough, three or four years ago. I'd headed out from Penzance. I could feel it in my bones it was going to be a good day. Sea was glass calm. Sea was boiling with bait fish, so schools of sprats, schools of sand eels. I passed a big... Apollo dolphins, little mother and calf porpoise. I saw a tuna jumping out of the water all around. You know, the sea was really kicking off. Um, I'd been paddling for five hours, was sitting my usual three miles offshore, having my coffee break. And then I heard in the distance, I heard the blow of a whale. So, you know, excitement overload. I, I got adrenaline surged around my system as I prepared to paddle after it. And then I heard two blows close together, so not one, but two whales. I surged after the noise at Olympic paddling speed, 
came across a minke whale, so the sort of relatively common whale, but then I saw a huge grey back jump out of the water, land back in with a splash, and this was a lunge feeding humpback whale. So, you know, a real living juggernaut of a creature, 40 foot long, 40 tons. And this thing was just going around the area and coming up from the depths at speed and engulfing these bait balls of bait fish. So I just sat there watching in amazement because th th this, I don't think this amazing lunge feeding behavior where it launched itself half out of the water with mouth open had ever been seen before in living memory and incidentally has never been seen since in living memory around southwest england so i just happened to be in exactly the right place in exactly the right time three miles offshore in my kayak so um i noticed that before the whale appeared at the surface the the little the bait fish the sprats would all you know scatter as the just before the whale burst out of the water so i was sitting there watching taking photographs and the whale dived down and and i could sense it was just beneath me i couldn't see it but i could sort of sense it was down there and suddenly all the sand eels i was i found myself i could see a huge bait ball of water just in front of me uh, sorry bait ball of sand eels in the water just in front of me i suddenly found myself sitting in the middle of the bait ball the fish then started to jump out of the water all around my kayak so i thought right something's going to happen here you're going to be tipped out i dropped my leg over the side of my kayak because it's just on a sit on top dropped my feet over the side to try and stabilize myself i think what happened was the whale was coming up directly beneath me saw me above it you know thought well i don't want to get that sort of plastic kayak and that grisly old geezer stuck in my mouth so it aborted its run and popped up just a few yards away so so that was probably my most thrilling and potentially exciting encounter wow that is uh that is amazing and, and as you mentioned just being in the right place at the right time what kind of a wake does a, a whale like that produce when it reaches the surface so this whale, when it came up, it did, um, when it fell back down, it did produce quite an impressive uh, surf wave, which maybe because I had 20 years of surfing experience, um, helped as I rode it as these sort of, as the wave dissipated as it came towards me. But what, once again, you know, that the benefits of watching these creatures from a kayak and the uninterrupted audio you get from it, I mean, it goes without saying you have an uninterrupted view because there's nothing to obstruct the view, but that there's, it's easy to forget that all other craft out on the water, including a sailing boat, in a sailing boat, sailing boat, half of the view is obstructed by the, um, by the sail. In a boat with an engine, your senses are dumbed down by the engine. And you know, I'm always watching because there's nothing else to do on a kayak. Your hands are busy. You can't do anything else but watch. You know, everyone else has got their head down, looking at their phone, looking at an instrument panel. But when you're encountering these creatures, you get the full McCoy of the experience. You get an uninterrupted view. And best of all, you get the sound effects. So this whale, 
I could hear the great blow of the whale and when it emerged out of the water, a roar as it came out and then the mighty splash as it went down. So it is, um, you know, it's sense around sound, sense around viewing and it is um, the best possible way. I mean, just to go on, I could go on about this all day. <laughs> also, viewing from the kayak, you have the best perspective of these creatures. You know, if you see people who photograph boats from uh, dolphins from boats, you're looking down on the blowhole. It's not quite so good as looking from a kayak where effectively you're sitting at water level and you're looking right into the eye horizontally into these creatures. And as I've said before, not infrequently, you're looking up at them. So it's the closest thing you're going to get to being um, in the water with them. I mean, to, be, to being effectively one of them. And funnily enough, when you're out at sea, none of these creatures show any fear of you. Most of them are attracted towards a kayak. So you're, you're basically, you're basically for a few magical hours, you're one of them. Amazing. So I know you've paddled several other countries. Aside from England, which has held your most memorable wildlife encounters and why? Yes, okay. I, I have, um, e England is my main um, focus of interest. I have dibbled with, I dibbled with, with been to Greenland. I have been whale watching in, or, or went paddling in the USA, done a bit in Mexico. I also love the west coast of Scotland. I put in a couple of thousand miles up there. But my favourite faraway place must be the Antarctic. I had the great good fortune to go on a 10-day trip to the Antarctic, which did include kayaking, of course. That's why I went. Every day we went out kayaking. Most days we saw humpback whales. One very, very memorable day. The kayak guide said to us, he said, look, it's windy. Only if you're really keen to go, are we going to take you out today? I, of course, volunteered to go. I also volunteered my long-suffering wife, Becky, to come with me. We went out paddling into this quite choppy sea, so naught degrees temperature, you know, naught degrees sea or whatever, paddling in amongst the icebergs. And we had the most extraordinary encounter with a mother humpback whale and her calf, which was nearly as big as she was. And for about half an hour, we sat and watched as this little calf, very large little calf, just came and checked us out. At one stage, when it was about 20 metres away, it turned, rolled over on its back. So we saw its tail flukes twist over and it then proceeded to swim upside down beneath us. And we could see it drift on, drifting underneath beneath us, just a metre or so beneath our kayaks, swam upside down then surfaced just a few yards away, spraying us with its blow. So Becky and I um, were very pleased to be in the, the very rare, very unusual, sprayed by a whale while in your kayak club. <laughs> but what was most magical about this encounter was this little creature, sorry, very large little creature and its mother. You know, they were just so gentle. They could have easily, accidentally on purpose, tipped us out of their kayak just for fun with their flukes. But that they, you know, they were in total control. They knew exactly where all their bits and pieces were. They had no intention of, of causing us any damage. And that sort of, to me, was probably the best part of the experience, of, uh, quite apart from seeing it in such a, you know, such 
elemental surroundings of snow and rock and glaciers and the, the cracking and booming of glaciers all around. I've had a number of guests uh, on the show that have uh, gone to Antarctica and have just said the wildlife encounters are just unbelievable there. Well, it, it is fantastic. The best thing about Antarctica, and it's lovely to know that there is a genuine mega wilderness like that in the world. I mean, another encounter we had with our kayaks, we came across a couple of sleeping humpbacks, a mother and calf humpback, just rocking backwards and forwards, glass calm day, and they were just sitting there quietly every so often, letting out this mighty blow, and which, which completely split the silence. The only other noise which we could hear echoing down the valley from for tens, scores of miles, was the cracking and grinding of ice moving down the glaciers around. And it's rather lovely when we were sitting there taking in the extreme wilderness to know that for another 2,000 miles beyond the horizon was a uninterrupted vista, um, exactly the same, probably with no other human, you know, to be seen for that entire time. So it is very, very nice to know that there is still one huge undisturbed wilderness on the planet and what its future is with regard to climate change who knows but it was an experience i certainly will never forget so what advice would you have for a would-be wildlife seeker well wildlife and wildlife photography the key to success is is grinding out the miles and going at every possible opportunity. I mean, I'm a bit weird like that because I am, you know, if I'm not involved with family or doing something else, I'm going to find somewhere to go, come hail or shine. I kayak throughout the year, got good sort of dry suits and that sort of thing. So it is just, it's just grinding out the miles. And it, it is quite simple, actually. The more you paddle, the more you see. There's just my, my own. My only tip would be if you want to see the really amazing creatures, which I love to see. So the offshore species. Um, incidentally, I should point out that uh, you know, Southwest England. For those of you who live in Southwest England or England, Southwest England is, I've discovered, as good as anywhere in the world with the strong tidal currents, the green water. It is super fertile if it is allowed to be like that. If fishing is kept under control. But if you want to see the dolphins, the sunfish, you know, the giant tuna, the gannets, some rare seabirds, paddling offshore is highly recommended. When I only did coastal paddling, I used to come across about one pod of dolphins a year. When I took up offshore paddling, that immediately went up to 20 or 30 pods a year. However, a lot of planning is involved with this. I'm, I'm only really happy to go offshore when the sea is flat calm so like up to force two maximum it's not just because of safety it's because if there's any chop on the sea so as soon as wavelets start to appear your kayak's moving around too much to see the fins and more importantly as soon as there's any noise at the surface you don't hear the blows when i encounter porpoises I usually hear the blows long before I see them. You can hear the splash of a pod of approaching dolphins long before you see them. You can certainly hear the blow of a whale long before you see them. So to make it really worthwhile and to make the experience more enjoyable, 
I mean, who who does who wouldn't enjoy sitting five miles offshore on a sea which is as calm as a lake? I mean, it is a it's a great experience. So weather planning is the key, and also, needless to say, you know, you've got to have a handle on the tides, the currents, which don't necessarily change at the same time as the tides in southwest England, and if you're talking about the north coast of Cornwall, the swell. So you've got to be in tune with all this stuff. But if you get it all right, you're going to have a great time. In addition to those safety precautions that you'd mentioned, what other safety precautions do you take when you're going offshore? Yes. Okay. Um, The last thing I want to do is be the subject of a rescue and put the rescue services to to unnecessary, although I suppose it would be necessary, action. So um, I take a mobile phone, I take a two-way radio, I take a personal locator beacon, and I take flares. And much of the coast of southwest England is overlooked, is watched by volunteers from the National Coast Watch Institution. So as a matter of courtesy to them, if I'm doing an offshore paddle, I call in with them on the radio. I mean, just purely to allay their fears, because I'm, I'm quite unusual that in that I disappear off out to sea and I could quite often zigzag about. If I see, if I see a, a, a flock of circling gannets, usually there's a finned creature beneath, so I'm going to paddle over there. So watching out from a pair of binoculars from the shore, they're going to see this guy in a small blue kayak zigzagging about miles offshore they're going to be alarmed so it's purely as a matter of courtesy to them i say look this is what i'm going to do i'll be back at a certain time so i do my best to keep myself well out of harm's way and not be a source of concern to these um very diligent volunteers looking out from ashore so how often do you get out and paddle i go out and paddle about four or five times a week, probably about five times a week at the minute. It's a bit of a struggle sometimes in winter because it is cold and it's England in the winter time, you know, is grey and cheerless. But bonus is there's fewer other people about. I mean, even bigger bonuses, you're less likely to be pestered, you know, have a jet ski mess up your day. In the summertime, I go a lot. I mean, funnily enough, this time of year, so we're talking about you're interviewing me um, in end of July. This is the best time of year. This is the peak time of year for cetaceans around the coast of UK. In fact, this time of year at the end of July is um, is National Marine Week when um, volunteers go out in droves to go and count the dolphins and whales around the coast. So I really focus in on this time of the year, a calm day at this time of the year you're as close as you can be guaranteed for a major uh, wildlife encounter. So this is my favourite time of year. But I do flog away up the estuaries, along the rivers, along the coast, uh, 24-7, days a year. So where can people learn more about you and your encounters with nature? You know, this is basically, this is just a glorified hobby for me. Well, it started off as a hobby. I now record all my adventures and photographs and videos in my blog, The Lone Kayaker. I write down shorter snippets, or if I have just one photograph to show, I put it on my Facebook page, Rupert Kirkwood. I've now expanded my hobby. Um, So I now, for for the winter period, from October to March, 
I go all around southwest England talking to whatever group wants to hear me do a presentation on all the wildlife I see and all the money I get from that I donate back to marine conservation charities so I feel you know very happy that I can do my little bit to look after and conserve the wonderful creatures that I can see by feeding it back to people who do the job at the cutting edge of the conservation front. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for uh, for sharing your talents with the world. And this has been wonderful to have the opportunity to hear from you and to, to learn about those experiences. Uh, well, then, thank you very much, John. It's great. I mean, I've, I've looked a lot at your Paddling the Blue podcast, and there is some um, very, very impressive paddlers which have gone before me. So although I may not do the miles that they do, I think I can contribute with the very exciting wildlife encounters, which I spend an awful lot of time and effort trying to observe. Absolutely. Well, I'm certainly pleased to be able to to count you as part of that family. So with that in mind, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Well, I've met actually some very interesting people as I've been paddling around. Just, you may be interested to know, I once bumped into Mr. Rick Stanton, who is, is now Sir Rick Stanton, who was the gentleman, the English cave diver, who rescued the Thai football team in the cave a few oh, years yes. ago. I just happened to bump into him in the kayak. Amazingly, I was walking along a beach the other day in North Wales. Who should I bump into about the legendary John Willisey? But the person who I'd like to nominate is a gentleman I've only just met once, but I follow all his his prolific Facebook stuff. And this is a man called Mike Conroy. I met him as I was paddling along an estuary six months ago. And Mike Conroy is currently, I believe, um, pinned down by the weather during his circumnavigation of Ireland. Um, so he's pinned down as he, as we speak, or hopefully on his way. So I think he will provide a very interesting account of his circumnavigation of, of Ireland. From what I've seen and heard, he has got a very pleasant turn of phrase and a very good turn of humor, which I think will keep your listeners entertained. Yes, so it has been a pleasure watching uh, watching Mike's journey as well. So thank you again. Thank you for the uh, for the referral to Mike. We'll connect with him offline. And once again, thank you for taking the opportunity to join me today to, to share your talents and your experiences with the world. Thanks, John. It's been a great experience. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. What a fun interview. Rupert is a perfect example of someone who has truly found and lives their passion day in and day out. Congratulations, Rupert. In our own ways, we all succumb to a little nerdism once in a while, and I'm glad Rupert shared his with us today. Rupert's description 
of his encounters with minke whales and humpback whales made me feel like I was right there with them. Imagine staring into those eyes and then back surfing the whale wake. Visit the show notes for this episode, number 95, for Rupert's contact information and a link to see his amazing photos. They are incredible. You do not want to miss them. His referral was also interesting in that it's a circular referral. So Mike Conroy randomly contacted me on Facebook to connect me with Rupert. And I was following Mike's journey around Ireland under the name Shamrock Loop, not realizing that it was Mike that was doing that trip. Then Rupert refers Mike to me, and I started making the connection. Thanks to our partners at Level 6 and OnlineSeaKayaking.com for extending offers to you. And if you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at Level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. And visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com to take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next guest is Jack Hampton, and Jack and a few friends paddled the Inside Passage with the goal of not only making the trip, but also exploring the lives of those living in the communities along the way and how they're impacted by decisions made about their homeland. Join us for Paddling the Margins. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.